0: Of Jerusalem and the uh, abolition of the old covenant with Israel. And uh, <clears throat> so that may be a new perspective for, for you, maybe the first time you've heard that. It's uh, new for many of us. We've probably, most of us, grown up hearing that all, all of the book of Revelation refers to things that are going to happen in the future. But in both the first chapter and the final chapter of Revelation, the Bible says these things will happen soon, that their fulfillment is near. And so while 2,000 years may be a short amount of time in God's eyes, it's not a short amount of time in human eyes. And so for it to happen near, I think, is a fulfillment of Jesus' prediction when he predicted many of these same things and said, this is going to be fulfilled in this generation. This generation will not pass away generation is about 35 to 40 years, and so Jesus said that about the year uh, 30, 33 A.D., and then in the year 70 A.D., the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and I think that what we have in the book of Revelation is a very poetic telling of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Uh, I... Usually, we'll just spend the entire service that I preach explaining one passage of Scripture, and that's what I'm primarily going to do today. But you've probably noticed in in recent weeks that I'm having you turn to a lot more passages of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, because I believe that uh, many of the word uh, pictures that are drawn— about mountains and about the oceans and about the stars and the moon and so on, that these are not literally referring to literal mountains and literal stars and moons and so on, but that these are poetic ways or word pictures of describing things, uh, which I'll explain some of them, but I'll have you turn to some Old Testament passages of Scripture, and the idea is, see, this is the way this was used in the Old Testament, and so it shouldn't surprise us that uh, in the in the book of Revelation we find this used in the same way. Uh, <clears throat> so, for example, we read in the Bible how that the elements rejoice at the prosperity of God's people. Uh, so I'll have you turn to a couple of passages of Scripture. So you might want to put a marker here in Revelation chapter 8, we'll be coming right back to Revelation 8, but turning your Bibles right quick to the book of Psalms, and look at Psalm 114. Psalm 114 forms the basis for the song that we will sing at the conclusion of the sermon, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. But notice, as I read this very short psalm, how that the... um, how that a literary device is used. I don't like the name of the literary device. It's called the pathetic fallacy. The person who gave it that name probably thought it ought not to be done, but it's done all the time. And the pathetic fallacy in literature is when you make uh, the elements reflect the mood of characters that you're writing about. And so it's a personification of of the elements in nature. So, for example. Uh, if someone is very sad, then the author might write about a very rainy day. If someone becomes angry, then he might describe that time of anger as taking place during a thunderstorm. So that the word pathetic doesn't mean, oh, I feel sorry for you, you're so stupid. The word path- pathetic means it it affects your emotions. And so the pathetic fallacy, as it's called in literature, is that we are attributing human emotions to things that are not human, but I, I regret that it's called a fallacy because it's used all the time in the Bible like it is here in Psalm 100, uh, 114. When Israel went out of, out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. So here we go, verse 3. The sea looked and fled Jordan turned back. So there were miracles that took place at the Red Sea and at the crossing of the Jordan. But the, the psalmist describes it as, oh, the sea was afraid and so it ran away. Jordan was going to go and then when it saw the ark of God, Jordan said, oh no, not going that way. And But this is this is the personification of things in nature. Verse 4 is the same way. <coughs> the mountains skipped like rams, <clears throat> the hills like lambs. <clears throat> so what happened there? I don't know. Was was there an earthquake? But we know that literally the mountains weren't skipping around like lambs and that the hills were not skipping around, around like, like lambs or rams. It's a, it's a personification of how that It seems like all of nature is is rejoicing and cooperating with this great deliverance that God has brought to the children of Israel. The psalmist continues, What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back. O mountains, that you skip like rams. O hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turns the rock into a pool of water and flint into a spring of water. Again, God literally did these things. He made water come out of rocks. But I think that it's clearly used here in a poetic way to say God is able to turn a very desperate situation into a good thing and He can get the elements of the earth to cooperate with Him. And then uh, look in your Bibles at Psalm 55, uh, not Psalm, but Isaiah 55. Isaiah chapter 55. We'll see another example of the elements of the earth cooperating with God in His blessing, rejoicing at the prosperity of His people. So Isaiah 55, verses 12 and 13 says, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. You see that? I'm sure that there are times on beautiful springtime days like this and the air is filled with the fragrance of flowers in bloom that you feel like this. It just feels like everything is singing. Well, that's, <clears throat> that is a, a personification of nature. The, the mountains and the hills shall break, shall, before you shall break forth into singing and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorns shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Now, I've chosen to show you just two passages of Scripture, but you Bible readers will know that sort of thing happens all the time, that uh, the elements of the earth, the mountains, the trees, uh, the mountains, and so on, are are shown to be sympathetic with whatever it is that God is doing. I think that something like that is going on when, when Jesus was crucified and it became dark for 3 hours that that was the the elements of the earth cooperating with what was going on and reflecting what was going on <clears throat> in revelation chapter 8 <clears throat> we see the various elements of the earth and they're not rejoicing that god is delivering israel instead they are cooperating in the destruction of jerusalem and the destruction of Israel. So in Revelation chapter 8. Before we get to the seven trumpets. We see the Lamb open the seventh seal. So if you're not back to Revelation 8. Please get back there. And here's what verse 1 says. <coughs> when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. To me that's a very, uh, very thought provoking passage of scripture. What does it mean that there was silence in heaven for about half an hour? What's the significance of that? Well, let's read on just a bit, and then I'll come back and give you several ideas on why I think there was silence for half an hour. So he opens the seventh seal, and that is paving the way for these seven angels. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them, Flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So the way that verse 5 concludes, it says there is great judgment. There's great judgment that is about to be poured out. And here are the elements of the earth in sympathy with that. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This judgment that is going to be thrown upon the earth... Comes as a result of the prayers of the saints. I think this is a very important point, and one of the most practical points that we can take away from this sermon is that your prayers matter. Your prayers become something significant in heaven. Back in chapter, a previous chapter, look back in chapter 6 at verse 9, I think that we can see some of the prayers that were offered that are answered in this pouring out of wrath on Jerusalem. So back in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. But they're offering up a prayer. Lord, we were mistreated. We were killed because we were faithful to you. And we know that you are a God of justice. While we were on earth, we paid attention to your directions, which said, Do not take vengeance, my friends, because vengeance belongs to the Lord. But Lord, we were killed wrongfully. We ask you to take care of it. You're a God who who said you would take care of it. Please take care of it. And the Lord says, I'm going to. Just wait a little while. Here's something to... Help you be happy in the meanwhile. and So they were given white robes and told to rest a little while longer. But now those prayers are being answered. There is a a judgment that is about to be described with the seven trumpets. But before the seven trumpets are poured out, we get the explanation as to why this terrible judgment is coming. The angel mixes incense with the prayers. I think that this could represent the Lord Jesus Christ because he is our intercessor. And sometimes when we pray, the Lord takes those prayers and he mixes them with the incense and beauty of of his own character and he offers them on the altar there before the Lord. I think it also could refer to the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit. It says in Romans chapter 8, that the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with, groaning, with groanings that are too deep for words. And so there are times when we just don't know what to pray. I think the Holy Spirit is able to recognize the, the holy yearnings of our heart and uh, rec- recognize the dilemma that we're in, not even, not even knowing how to pray and what to say about things. And the Lord mixes the incense of His wisdom with that. And offers them on the golden altar before the Lord. And then this smoke from the incense together with the prayers of the saints rises from the hand of the angel before the Lord God. And God answers the prayer. The angel then takes fire from the altar and puts it on his censer and throws it on the earth. And uh, then there follow these rumblings, flashes of lightning, peals of thunder and an earthquake. Now, I think we're ready to consider the question why was there silence in heaven for half an hour? I have several suggestions, and they all may be true. The first one is that I think that this is a solemn silence at what is about to transpire. It's a solemn silence about what is is going to transpire. They know what's coming, the inhabitants of heaven know what is coming. When the Lamb opens the seventh seal, they know that it means destruction for Jerusalem, but it's a solemn thing. Yes, there's rejoicing that justice is being done. Yes, there is rejoicing that the blood of the martyrs is being avenged, but it still is a solemn thing. For 2,000 years, God has dealt nearly exclusively on the earth with the family of Abraham. He has patiently borne with the people of Israel as given them his word, has sent them his prophets, and they have persistently rejected his word, disobeyed his word, killed his prophets, and then finally, God sends them his son. And according to the parable that Jesus told, the owner of the vineyard says, surely they will respect my son. But when they saw Jesus, the son, then they, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him, thinking that the, the vineyard would be theirs. And uh, so, when even when we, <clears throat> we people of the Lord, see justice carried out against the enemies of the Lord, there still is kind of a, so, a solemnity about it. Uh, and I think that this could be a solemn silence about what is about to transpire. But there are no objections. No one says, wait a minute, Lord, dig around it one more year. Let me fertilize it. And Then if it bears fruit next year, fine. If it doesn't, then after that, cut it down. No, the fertilizing and the digging around has already been done. The summons from the mother hen to gather her chicks under her wings has already been given, but the chicks never came. And so now there is a solemn silence. And I can just imagine the angels and and the saints who had been redeemed out of Israel down through the ages just kind of being tight lipped and shaking their heads back and forth. God is right. God does what is right. He always does what is right. But it still is sad. And there was a solemn silence. I think it could also be a, rever- a reverential silence at the judge in his temple. I say this because uh, the words of, of Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 20. Echo in my head. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The Lord's presence in the temple uh, is primarily in the book of Revelation an evidence of his about to bring that he is about to bring judgment. The Lord's sitting upon his throne is not in the book of Revelation. It's not primarily about look at what a regal place he occupies. His sitting on the throne is that this is the place from which he pronounces judgment. And so when the Lord uh, sits on his judgment throne and is about to bring judgment, then I think that there was a reverential silence at the judge in his temple. A little bit like in our courtrooms when the judge comes in and the bailiff says, All rise! And everyone stands and shows respect until the judge sits down. Could be something like that. Could also be a submissive silence, a submissive silence waiting on the Lord like Israel at the Red Sea. Remember that <clears throat> when Israel came out of Egypt and Pharaoh came after them, they were pinned up against the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 14, the Lord tells them, or Moses, Moses tells them, be still. And see the hand of the Lord. You can imagine all of the cries of uh, f- uh, of despair and frustration and and terror that were raising from all of those thousands of Israel. That they thought now we are done for. And some of them were even complaining. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to get hi- get killed here on the shores of the Red Sea? And Moses just says be still. God is going to go to work here. And then he destroys the. The troops of Pharaoh in the Red Sea delivers his people safely through. This is why I read the account of the Israelites marching around Jericho six days in silence. The, the priests are blowing their horns, but everybody else is being silent. And then on the day, on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And when the trumpets are blown, then the people shout and they break their silence. And then what happens after those days of silence? And judgment comes down upon Jericho, Rahab is delivered. So I think that it could be a submissive silence waiting on the Lord to do what only the Lord can do. So I've suggested that it could be a solemn silence at what the Lord is about to do, a submissive silence, a reverential silence. And then fourthly, I think that this is a worshipful, contemplative silence as it says in Psalm 46 in verse 10, "Be still and know that I am God." Be still. You need to have a good portion of that in your life. Don't always be listening to the radio. Don't always have a, don't always have air AirPods in your ears. Every time you take a walk, you don't have to be listening to something. Every time you work out, you don't have to be listening to something. Every time you get in the car, you don't have to be listening to something. There are times when you just need to be still. Be still and think. Be still and reflect in your soul upon what the Lord is teaching you. Be still and know that I am God. I think this might be a worshipful, contemplative silence as Jesus Christ, the Lamb, opens the seventh seal and there's just admiration and worship in heaven for the way that Jesus has undertaken the administration of the kingdom. And so then, in answer to the prayers, these judgments are poured poured out. We're only going to see the first four trumpets in chapter 8. We saw earlier that the seals are are divided up into two categories. There first of all are the four horsemen. And then there are three seals after that that are obviously different. And so similarly here, that we have the first four trumpets. And then after that, the, the final three trumpets are also described as woes. So at the conclusion of this chapter, uh, an eagle will fly overhead and say, Whoa, whoa, whoa to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the three trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So we'll just cover the first four trumpets this morning, and then, Lord willing, next week go into seeing those last three trumpets, which are also characterized as woes. Let's think for just a bit about uh, the significance of the fact that it's trumpets that are being blown. Now, in the Old Testament, trumpets were used for a variety of reasons. Sometimes trumpets would be used (coughs) to summon the people. Sometimes trumpets would be blown to uh, announce that a feast was coming on, a feast time was coming. But then there also were trumpet blasts that were specified to be at the commencement of war. And I think that's the trumpet blast that we have here that the significance that these woes are unfolded by trumpet blasts means that God is going to battle. <clears throat> I believe that these four trumpets represent a reversal of blessing on Israel. So we'll see in each one of these cases, so for example, <clears throat> the first angel blows his trumpet and there's hail and fire mixed with blood. Now does that, <clears throat> does that sound familiar to you? Where else in the Bible have you read about plagues of hail, plagues of fire, and plagues of blood? Well, I read, I read the beginning of the ten plagues for you from the book of Exodus. And so I think that when we see hail and fire mixed with blood, we're to think, Oh, this is what God sent upon Egypt when he was delivering Israel out of Egypt. Those things were marshaled for the deliverance of Israel in that time, but now these same plagues are being poured out on Israel as God is pouring out His wrath upon Israel. And so I think that there are, in each of the four trumpets, that you can see that there is an Old Testament parallel. In the Old Testament parallel... God was using these things to bless and deliver Israel, but now he 's using these same things to destroy Israel now i don't think that, <clears throat> I don 't think that at the destruction of Jerusalem that there was lit- a literal hail mixed with fire and with blood that this is, this is apocalyptic biblical language, and that it's very poetic to say there was a reversal uh, that, that took place. <clears throat> Instead of delivering Israel out of Egypt, now Israel has become Egypt, and uh, <clears throat> that might seem a, a little bit strong to you. But uh, turning your Bibles to Revelation chapter eleven, and I'll show you that it is not too strong. <coughs> in Revelation eleven, we read about the two witnesses, and it says in verse seven and when they have finished their testimony the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is that symbolically is called sodom and egypt where their lord was crucified well jesus was crucified in jerusalem and so uh, jerusalem has stopped being the holy city and has become sodom and egypt and so, so I think that's the significance of these four trumpets. And now let me go on. I've already explained to you the first one. Well, what does it mean when it says a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up? Again, I, to a degree, it could be literal. You can read in you can read in Josephus' history of the Jewish Wars, uh, and uh, he he devotes or 300 pages to the siege and destruction of Jerusalem, when the Roman armies were surrounding Jerusalem, Jerusalem had been, the environs of Jerusalem had been uh, thickly planted with fruit trees, olive trees, and various gardens. And when the Romans came, then they cut all that stuff down. Of course, they ate what was edible, but they cut it all down in order to better besieged the city, they did quite a bit of earthwork moving. And, uh, <clears throat> and so as, as part of that process, one of the things that they did was they cut down all of the greenery. So to a degree that could be literally fulfilled, but I can't find a literal fulfillment for all of this. <clears throat> if I'm going to look at it figuratively, then I might say that this represents people, that the, the trees would represent important people and green grass would represent the common people. <coughs> but um, it could be the rulers and the people. So the first plague is a reversal of what happened in Egypt. Now notice secondly, verse 8, "...the second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood." A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. I think that this mountain is Israel, and that this means that Israel is being thrown back into the world. So Israel was chosen out of the world. The Lord says in the Old Testament, you only have I chosen out of all the peoples of the earth. But now with the destruction of Jerusalem, the mountain of Israel, is being thrown back into the sea. The sea in the Bible often represents the Gentile world. And of course, figuratively, that is what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem. In 1948, there, has, there have been <clears throat> tens of thousands of Jews who have gone back to that land. Uh, I, and I meant to look this up before I got to this point in the sermon, but I forgot to ask, you know, to Google sometime, What percentage of Jews actually live in Israel? And I would be willing to guess that it's fewer than 10% of the worldwide population of Jews lives in Israel. In fact, there are more Jews who live in New York City than live in in the the nation of Israel. So, certainly the nation of Israel, after the destruction of Jerusalem, was dispersed all over the world. As for uh, how, how do I get that this mountain is Jerusalem... I'm going to have you turn to a few passages of scripture. So <clears throat> Psalm forty-six, verse two, Psalm forty six and verse two is the first verse of scripture I want you to look at. <clears throat> I read this this whole chapter to you a minute ago, but remind you again. God is our refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. <clears throat> Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Admittedly, this does not specifically identify Israel as a mountain, but you can tell that mountains here is figuratively standing for something other than... Uh, Pikes Peak and and Mount Everest and so on. It's standing for something else that can be removed into the sea. I don't think think that the psalmist is just imagining if the whole earth breaks up. I think he's saying if there is terrible political upheaval so that nations are dissolved and thrown into the sea, our citizenship in heaven is still secure. And then look in Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 2. We'll see another instance of mountains referring to something other than the snow-capped peaks that we may have in mind. This is one of the scriptures that we memorized several months ago. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of Yahweh, the mountain of the house of the Lord, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So here Israel is described as a mountain. You might say, well, it looks to me like the mountain is preserved. Again, I believe that this is a passage of Scripture that refers to spiritual realities that are taking place and that have taken place in the latter days, but there are spiritual realities that are described using terminology that the people in Isaiah's day would have recognized. And in Isaiah's day, Jerusalem on the mountain was the center of the place in the whole earth that had the truth of God. And so if everybody is going to Jerusalem for the truth of God, then that would be described as let us go up to the mountain of Yahweh. And so I would say that figuratively that is still what is taking place, that figuratively we all are still looking to the foundation that was laid in the nation of Israel, in the family of Abraham. And we, to use the, the language of, Hebrew, of, of Romans chapter 11, we are like an, a wild olive branch that is, has been engrafted into the tame olive tree, which is Israel. But the nation itself, like a great mountain, has been thrown into the world And then look at Jeremiah chapter 51 and verse 25. Jeremiah 51 and 25. See another time in the Bible when mountains are referred to to a nation. This time it is Babylon. And he says, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. So when God pours out His judgment <clears throat> on Babylon, He says, you're like a mountain and I'm going to throw fire on you and make you a burnt mountain. <clears throat> so we already saw that in the first trumpet, the Lord sends hail and fire, hail and uh, and. Mixed with fire and it burns up and Now, in this second trumpet, we see that a mountain is thrown into the ocean. Finally, under this point, look at matthew chapter twenty one and verse twenty one <clears throat> matthew twenty one twenty one That Jesus was just using hyperbolic language as saying, if your faith is so strong, you'll not only be able to curse trees and make them wither at the roots, but you'll also be able to look at a big mountain like Mount Everest or like Pike's Peak and say, all right, up you go over the continent and into the Pacific with you. I wonder if anyone has tried that, or you may be sure. There are people who have thought, I wonder if I've got enough faith to move a mountain. Let's just try it. Mm. But, of course, mountains don't get up and go sailing through the air. But in answer to prayer, which is the context here, there was a mountain. Which mountain? Mm. Jesus says, this mountain. You will say to this mountain. Which mountain? The mountain that Jerusalem is situated on. You will say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and it will happen. And then back in Revelation chapter 8, we see that's what did happen. The prayers of the saints are brought into heaven, they're offered with incense on the golden altar, and then the prayer is answered for vengeance against Israel. Then the third trumpet, so back in Revelation chapter 8, the third trumpet is blown, and this is when I saw something like a great star blazing like a torch come out of heaven, and fall on the rivers and the springs of water. And, the, and the, the star's name is Wormwood. This star even has a name. The name is significant. The name Wormwood means bitterness. Now let's just do a, uh, a little bit of Old Testament remembering. Do you remember any incidents in the Old Testament that involved bitter water? Well, there was a time in Exodus chapter 15, we can read about it. <clears throat> in Exodus chapter 15, Israel is uh, in the wilderness <clears throat> and they come <clears throat> they come to a place called Mara. And Mara means bitter because the waters there were bitter. And the Lord told Moses there's a certain tree that I want you to cut down and put that tree in the water and it will make the waters sweet. And so, when Israel is being delivered and when Israel is being provided for, the waters are made sweet. But then, when Israel is being destroyed, wormwood comes out of the sky and makes the waters bitter. Turning your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13, and you will see this spelled out a little more clearly. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13. <clears throat> and the Lord says, Because they have forsaken my law that I set before them and have not obeyed my voice or walked in accord with it, but have stubbornly followed their own hearts and have gone after the Baals as their father taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed this people with bitter food, And give them poisonous water to drink. I will scatter them among the nations, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send the sword after them until I have consumed them. And so, this is not the first time in the Bible that we read of God sending judgment against his unfaithful people by giving them bitter food and bitter water to drink. And the fact that the star is named Wormwood is just because in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Wormwood is a symbol of things that are very bitter. So the water becomes bitter and many people die because of it. Finally, in verse 12, we read about the fourth angel. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining And likewise, a third of the night. Again, I don't think we're supposed to look for a literal fulfillment of that in 70 AD. But instead, can you remember another time in the Bible other than the crucifixion when the world was made dark? Why, yes, it was during the plagues of Egypt. The ninth plague was a plague of darkness. But it was used to deliver the people of Israel in that time and to single them out. And now, the, the same plague comes back, and it is at the destruction of Israel. Well, what are we to take away <clears throat> from this? Uh, one thing I think is that uh, God may be patient, and he may be patient for long, but he will not strive with man forever. He will not strive with us as individuals forever. The Lord may be patient, and the Lord no doubt has been, been patient with each one of us. But if we persist in sinning and if we persist in rebellion against the Lord, then His punishment will come. If you are His child, then He's not going to send you to hell, but He's not going to just leave you alone. If He leaves you alone, then that's evidence that you're not His child because the Lord disciplines those He loves and chastises all of His children. So the fact that you are Being disciplined by the Lord because of your sin is evidence that you are his child. But if you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a Christian yet, the Lord has already been patient with you. The Lord has been patient in preserving your life. The Lord has been patient in drawing you for whatever reason to be in church today. And some of you are here repeatedly, but still you are Refusing to submit to the Lord. Take a warning from this passage of Scripture. God's patience eventually runs out. And if His patience runs out before you become a Christian, then there is no hope for you to have a second chance. Another thing that I think we take away from this passage of Scripture is be encouraged in your prayers. It may seem at at times that God is not answering your prayers, but remember this sign in heaven when there is an angel, probably Jesus or the Holy Spirit here personified as an angel, who takes the prayers of the saints and mingles them together with incense and offers them before God. And that those prayers that you offer in Jesus' name and in sincerity and in the furtherance of His kingdom do not fall to the ground. If you have never been born again, the teaching of the Bible is that you should repent of your sin. Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin, with grief and hatred of his sin, turns from it unto God, fully intending to obey God from now on. I call you today to repent. And then put your faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone as he is offered to us in the gospel. He is offered to us in the gospel as as a prophet to teach us. Will you receive Jesus as your prophet? He's offered us in the Bible as a priest to offer a sacrifice to reconcile us to God. Will you receive Jesus as your priest and sacrifice? He's offered to us in the gospel as a king to rule over us and to defend us. Will you receive Jesus as your king? Yes, that means that if you want to be a Christian, from now on you have got to do what Jesus tells you to do. You've got to believe what Jesus teaches you to believe in the Bible. It may be that you think that you know Christians who are Christians and still just keeping living life the way that they want to live. That person's not a real Christian. All real Christians now govern their lives by the lordship of Jesus Christ. He changes us so that we we no longer have the desires for sin the way that we once did. And so it's true that we're living the way that we want to live, but it's a way that we want to live because of the teaching and influence of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so I want to be clear with you. You cannot become a Christian and you cannot go to heaven unless you turn away from living life under your own direction. And you say, Jesus, from now on, you teach me and you lead me. And uh, give your life entirely to Christ. Ask Him to be your Lord and Savior so that you might be delivered from His wrath and come under the umbrella of His favor. Come under the wings of His protection. Just before Jesus was crucified, He stood outside of Jerusalem and he, He cried. And He said, How often I have longed to gather you under my wings, as a chick gathers her wi- uh, as, as a chicken gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not now today is a time when the Lord Jesus says, "If you will come today i 'll gather you under my wings i 'm reminded of a story that I <clears throat> read and have also heard it about a a prairie that took place, a prairie fire that took place years ago, and the farm of uh, a man was destroyed and his pastor was walking around with him on the burnt, smoldering remains of what had been a beautiful farm. The buildings were burned, the crops were burned, and the uh, the farmer and the pastor were walking through a burnt-over pasture, and the farmer, just in disgust, kicked over this clump of grass or clump of wheat that was left there. And when he kicked it over, then there were a bunch of little chicks that ran out. And on closer examination, it was seen that wasn't a clump of grass. That wasn't a clump of wheat. That was the mother hen. When the fire came, she gave that little alarm call and those little chicks ran under her wings. And when the fire passed over, she she stood her ground and protected her chicks. There's a great fire coming, folks. God's been patient for a long time. Some people think it's not going to happen, but there's a great fire coming. And God has shown that He is able to bring judgment. And today, hear the voice of Jesus as He says, Come under my wings, and I'll protect you from the fire that is coming. Ruth Ann come. <clears throat> in conclusion, we're going to sing <clears throat> a song that is a, an opportunity for us to reflect with worship upon what we have uh, studied today. A mighty fortress is our God. As I said, this is based on Psalm 46. Let's stand while we sing.